Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Hello. My name is Vlad Ratsu, and I'm happy to welcome you to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In this uh, Journal of Hepatology live episode, uh, we will discuss cases of autoimmune hepatitis that have been recorded after vaccination for COVID-19. So we have an excellent uh, faculty panel, uh, including the first uh, um, author that has described the case of autoimmune hepatitis, and that was in the Journal of Hepatology, and this is Fernando Brill from the United States. Uh, we have Johannes Hartl uh, from Germany, which will uh, talk uh, to us about um, a, a different view of the, the possible uh, relationship uh, between the vaccination and cases of autoimmune hepatitis. Um, we have uh, Naga Chalazani, uh, who will um, uh, describe the American experience in terms of acute hepatic events and liver injury following autoimmune, uh, following uh, COVID vaccination. And uh, Bob Fontana, who contributed to some of these cases. And uh, I'm, I'm sure this will be a lively discussion, although I'm not sure that we'll have all the answers uh, regarding the pathogenesis and the causality of this association at the end of this episode. So what I will try to do in the very beginning, since there was a lot of controversy uh, once the first cases of altered liver function tests have been described in patients that were infected uh, with SARS-CoV-2 that were developing COVID-19, there was a lot of controversy regarding to whether the virus itself infects the liver, which cells in the liver, whether it's cytopathogenic for the liver and whether it can induce liver injury by itself. And if I can have the first slide, um, I would like just to highlight two papers uh, which are really very important because they have studied in detail whether the virus is present in the liver and whether it induces inflammatory changes and whether it is associated with changes in the expression of genes involved in inflammation and liver cell injury. And the first paper that has been published in Nature Metabolism is shown here on the slide. It shows basically that it is a, a multi institution collaboration, and it shows that uh, the liver is indeed susceptible to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. There are entry receptors that are distributed on different liver cells, although cholangiocytes seem to have more of these than, than hepatocytes. Um, th there is clearly a hepatic tropism of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that, since the virus has been shown to be present in hepatic cells. And since in particles isolated from the from um, patients who underwent liver transplantation were found to be infectious. And finally, there are very important transcriptional changes associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection of the liver. Uh, in particular, upregulation of the interferon and JAK-STAT2 signaling, and downregulation of some of the metabolic processes, uh, in particular those related to glucose metabolism. So moving to the next slide. Um, and then another paper has shown that there are, uh, in fact, ultrastructural changes in hepatocytes that have been infected by, by the virus, in particular, spike structures uh, in, in, the, in the cells, alterations of the mitochondria, of the endoplasmic reticulum, and so on. And this is another paper that has been published in the journal um, quite, quite a while ago. 
So with this in mind, it is clear that the virus can infect the liver, that can it can induce uh, changes in gene expression, and that creates maybe a, a, a framework that can make it um, uh, clear that some uh, liver injury phenomena or autoimmune uh, liver phenomena can occur after infection by this virus. Now, the, this, um, this, this next uh, piece of information that I would like to show you is based on an excellent and very comprehensive position paper published just uh, two months ago in the Journal of Hepatology, which basically is a, a um, this, the sum of most of the knowledge we have of COVID-19 with a particular focus on the liver. And what this tells us in relation to the topic we're discussing today is that people with autoimmune hepatitis that have autoimmune hepatitis diagnosed already are not at higher risk of COVID infection because of the immunologic uh, disturbance they, they're experiencing. They are not at higher risk either of more severe COVID infection if ever they get infected with the virus. But there is some controversy uh, as to whether the baseline use of steroids or azathioprine could increase the risk of severe COVID. Uh, another thing that is important, though, and that will be important for our discussion about vaccination-induced episodes of autoimmunity is that after COVID infection, there's a high prevalence of autoantibodies uh, as a serological finding independent of alterations of liver function test or actual hepatitis. And then it is clear that many cases of, like with other uh, viral infections, of de novo autoimmunity have been described following SARS-CoV-2 virus, including uh, systemic lupus, immune thrombocytopenic purpura, Guillain-Barré, and autoimmune hepatitis. And that brings us to today's uh, subject. So again, uh, all the information you need to know about COVID, including how to treat it, uh, is in this position paper uh, by Easel. So from here on, I would like to uh, go straight into the topic of today's uh, podcast, uh, which is um, try to make sense about the cases of autoimmune hepatitis that have been described in, in people um, that received uh, the uh, vaccine, uh, co uh, the, the COVID vaccine. And the first such case was reported by Fernando Briel and his team in the journal and that was followed by a flurry of other cases in the same journal and then in other publications as well. And uh, all of these can have, have actually some, some features that are common. And I would like to ask Fernando maybe to shortly comment on this and then uh, Bob Fontana from, uh, uh, from the United States as well to tell us about the American experience of these cases. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, so uh, I'll tell you a little bit of our experience. Obviously, when we reported uh, our case, uh, we kind of uh, had a little bit of uh, physiologic feasibility. We, we knew there was autoimmunity with uh, COVID. We knew that the vaccines, uh, after they are, they are uh, inoculated, the RNA appears in the liver. So, and they, are, uh, they produce the spike protein that we know there's some molecular mimicry. So, we, we had a patient that presented to us with what we, we will call clinically classic uh, autoimmune hepatitis, 35-year-old female. She was on the third month postpartum, which could be considered a confounding factor if we are thinking whether this was related to the vaccine. She had a really short latency. After the first dose of the vaccine, She, in her case, she got a RNA vaccine. Six days after getting the first dose, she started with uh, jaundice, uh, first pruritus, uh, and then added jaundice and, and coluria. 
So we did all the workup and uh, finally the patient got a, got a biopsy, which was consistent with autoimmune hepatitis. She had markers of it, uh, ANA antibodies were positive. Uh, she actually had a double-stranded DNA, also positive. And then a histology that you would consider classic for autoimmune hepatitis, maybe with uh, a little bit more eosinophils that we usually see, uh, although they, they have been well-described uh, as well in autoimmune hepatitis. So we had that case and we, we, we had all the background that COVID was associated with autoimmunity. So we said, okay, I, we, we, we think this is something that we need to share to see other one, uh, everybody's uh, experience. And we were very surprised with the response we, we got because it, it seemed it was not just an isolated case and people were reporting uh, soon afterwards, many cases. And as you mentioned, some were similar, but some others are, are not. It's kind of a spectrum that goes from the classic autoimmune hepatitis to something that you can consider a little bit more like drug-induced or vaccine-induced liver injury. Uh, so, so I think that's a little bit of our experience. Uh, since then, we, we've had other cases as well, and I'm pretty sure uh, the people in the audience and uh, everybody here probably have already seen cases. Uh, now the question, uh, and that's what why we are here, is do we know if this is really related or not and how important uh, all this is overall? So did, you, did your patient receive a second uh, shot of the vaccine? Uh, no, she she decided not to, but it was her personal decision not to to get a second dose. Okay, so um, Dr. Fontana, um, did you see similar cases? Uh, do they present the same way? Are they very different from the typical autoimmune hepatitis, uh, independent of the vaccine? What sure. can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. It's Bob Fontana here from Michigan. So. Um, We've put together a, a case series of actually, we now are up to 20 cases from multiple centers throughout the United States. Some of these have come in through the Dillon network that Naga and I are part of, and some were just sort of sent to us through other hepatologists. And, um, you know, like we see with most things that are drug related, if this is truly vaccine induced hepatitis, it's a spectrum of findings that we're finding so far, at least in our case series of 20. Uh, we have men and women. We've not had any children at all. Um, there is a slight female predominance in our case series, 70% female. And as uh, Fernando mentioned, we, we, we frequently find the autoantibodies um, as well. Um, we, the liver biopsies, we have uh, six of them that are being um, reviewed by an expert hepatopathologist. So I can't really comment on a specific theme, but there was a recent nice paper by Dr. Chow and DDS that summarizes the published literature on 32 cases. And in those 32 cases, they described autoimmune-like histology in those 32 published cases. So I, it certainly can look like autoimmune, but it's not always autoimmune. And what I mean by that, we've had cases of cholestasis, um, and we've also had cases of self-limited hepatitis with no intervention that just simply go away that are mild. And so I think like we've learned with most other causes of DILI, uh, the more cases you get, the more protein you will realize are the phenotypes associated with the vaccine. But it comes back to Fernando's first point, which I think is really important for us to stay grounded on this, which is, is this incidental 
uh, hepatitis that's happening, whether it's idiopathic or sporadic autoimmune, um, or, or is it really due to the vaccine? And I, I think we can discuss that further here on this podcast. And I guess there is a third possibility, which would be triggering of some latent autoimmune process in someone who has some predisposition, either genetic or otherwise, for an autoimmune process, which might have had a autoimmune hepatitis occurring in the future in another occasion, but this could have been sort of triggered or accelerated by the vaccine. I, I fully agree with you on that point. Um, <clears throat> we're looking at the, um, we have DNA in our 20 cases. So we're looking for the HLA alleles that have been associated with classic autoimmune. I don't have those results yet, but we're very interested to find those. But I agree with you that, um, you know, <clears throat> the larger data sets from the CDC and the VAERS and other sort of uh, regulatory agencies around the world have clearly shown that you can get autoimmune phenomenon after the mRNA vaccines, right? <clears throat> the myocarditis is very well established statistically and epidemiologically, as is um, Guillain-Barre and a few other ones. When we asked uh, actually some of the regulatory agencies here in the United States to help us with this and to look at, you know, self-reports to, you know, large uh, databases like the FDA, they couldn't find a statistical relationship that they said, yes, we think liver is one of the autoimmune phenomenon because there weren't enough cases. So I think basically the jury's still out when you look at it from a population level at least with the data that we had. And that was about six months ago when they did that analysis. Can I, can I briefly chime in? You know, this thing about Vlad, the vaccine somehow precipitating AIH in genetically predisposed individuals. You know, if you look at drugs, other drugs like nitrofurantoin, minocycline, when they cause autoimmune-like, those patients don't share AIH, HLA alleles. They have their own things. And I think we have both from Spain as well from the US. When we look at Nitrofurento and Bob Fontana reported minocycline, they have different HLA alleles, but not BR3, DR4. You know, so keep that in mind. It is, it isn't, doesn't have to be somehow they have latent AIH and this sort of induced it. Right. And also, I agree with the point that as we accumulate more experience, the, the, the spectrum of disease could be very different. I was talking to Dr. Fontana. I am now treating a 45-year-old with cholestatic hepatitis. And he does, his second dose vaccine was in December, became symptomatic in uh, sometime sort of late January, February with upper GI symptoms, didn't get tested until... May, by then bilirubin was eight. Workup was completely negative. Biopsy only showed cholestasis. I mean, there is no other etiology. Um, is it somehow related to the vaccine? We have no idea. I think we would enroll them into the billing just to uh, continue to add to the number of cases we have. But I, I think uh, we just need to continue to monitor this. And also the fact that this was after the second dose which makes the point that number of some of the cases, about half the cases I think happened after second dose and about half were after the first dose. Actually, um, I think it's actually more after the second dose, right? I think like 75% after the second dose. So. 
Yeah, I think Naga, you're right. Uh, we are discussing today mainly autoimmune hepatitis because most cases reported are about this, but there are occasional reports. And I think in the journal, uh, we also had a letter of someone reporting a case of primary biliary cholangitis with occurrence of uh, anti-mitochondrial antibodies following the, the vaccine. So that probably fits the pattern you, you have described. But can we all agree that um, cases that we see with autoimmune uh, hepatitis or flares after the vaccine occur in people who don't necessarily have any autoimmune history? Um, I think that's the case, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the case. Uh, yeah. You know, Fernando, a question to you. If the patient did not object to it, would you have given the, the second dose? That's first question. Second question well, is, would you, you have me on this the vaccine? Would you have given <laughs> a different type of vaccine? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. I think the experience on, on other reported cases is that although there were some cases with a, a positive rechallenge, like worsening after a second dose, most of them didn't, sh didn't show a, a positive rechallenge. So... So the jury is out there, but I think uh, I may have tried a different one, uh, but uh, I think I, I would encourage it because uh, it's not that all cases have rechallenge, only a min minority. And if you are kind of uh, alert, you can just monitor it. And, and we don't know what would happen with these people if they get the actual infection, right? They may still develop some, something similar just with COVID infection. So you still want to pr prevent infection. So just to make sure we all agree on this point, because this, this is important, everything has been described, both people who have a rechallenge without occurrence of a new episode and cases where maybe there are not as many, but it has been described where a rechallenge has been followed by a re-increase in, in ALT. And uh, there are very few fatal cases, but I've I think I came across a, a case of fulminant hepatitis that required liver transplant. Yeah, so, I know yeah. one case. You, you know what case? Okay. So this is, uh, so therefore it becomes, so it's not a rule that like, like in drug-induced liver disease that you should uh, avoid rechallenge, uh, but it, it, is, it is difficult to predict uh, what will happen uh, after a second dose. And uh, in, in cases where you believe that the risk benefit is largely in favor of the vaccine, would you go with the same vaccine or would you change the vaccine? Yeah, this is Bob. Um, in our 20 cases, um, we've had four instances of re-challenge, um, and it's a mixed bag, exactly like what you heard. Um, some of them did fine, <laughs> had no problem, and others got more uh, severe episode after the, the, the second or the third dose, depending upon where they were. So I don't know that we know. I, I would say, though, with there being multiple vaccines now available, um, including now the Novavax vaccine, which is purely recombinant protein and not mRNA-based, you have options. And I certainly would advocate, I don't know that there's data, but we do this with drug-induced liver injury all the time, to pick you know, a different, different vaccine. And that's actually what I've counseled the patients that I've seen that I've enrolled in the study to do that. Some so of them are still very hesitant. But yeah, I mean, there have been, I think, like a few reports where they also changed the type of the vaccine from mRNA right. to vector-based. And in none of those published cases, there was, again, a second flare of hepatitis when they changed. Right. So when they changed. Okay. Yeah. A few words about, uh, I, I'm not sure there is much to say, but it is very important to, 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 to tell people that these episodes of autoimmune hepatitis respond very well to corticosteroids. 
I, I guess we all agree on that based on what has been reported. And an important thing to know is that in contrast to autoimmune hepatitis, where it takes a long time to have a patient off uh, immunosuppressive drugs, uh, in this case here, corticosteroids can be stopped quite early and there is no relapse um, of, the, of the hepatitis. Uh, would you all agree on that? Yes. Yeah, I would. So, it so seems that, like it. Um, in that um, regard, this resembles drug-induced LIH. Yes. You know, the most recent um, consensus and, type paper published in, in hepatology communication sort of highlights that drug-induced LIH, you can stop steroids and immunosuppression with them for six months, actually. That is one of the criteria that the authors proposed. So it seems quite consistent with the same pattern. Good. I would like to ask um, now, I would like to give a little bit of time for the, uh, for the controversy uh, or, or rather try to understand, to put this in the larger context of autoimmune hepatitis as, as, a, as a disease, as an epidemiological problem and vaccination as a, as a mass uh, vaccination issue. So uh, when you, of course, if you focus on cases that have been reported, um, you, you get the feeling that the association is real, and certainly it is in these individuals, but there are other ways to look at the problem from more of a macro epidemiological level. And uh, I would like to ask you um, whether um, there, our, our, our German friends who published on this, especially Ansgar Lohse's group, um, what have you noticed in terms of the incidence of autoimmune hepatitis in these COVID times? I mean, the, the problem is here, right, when the, when the whole population gets vaccinated, you don't have a control group. So it's really difficult to prove any causation. And I think like case reports and also case series are great to raise awareness, but you cannot really question causality with this form of reports. So what we were thinking was that if there is really a causal relation, then there should be an increased incidence of autoimmune hepatitis. Obviously, this is just our own single center experience, but we did not see an increase. We actually saw the contrary. We saw like a decline of newly diagnosed cases at our center. Now you could say this is because of the pandemic because less patients were referred to our center. But when you look at the ratio at our center of newly diagnosed cases to the total number of referred patients with autoimmune hepatitis, and also this number declined. So. By looking at this, you cannot disprove or completely exclude that there is something like vaccine-induced autoimmune hepatitis or immune-mediated hepatitis, but it definitely does not support it. And if it's going to happen, it's something super rare. And I think this also fits to the U.S. experience. I mean, the whole U.S. population got vaccinated, and you have a case series of 20 cases. I I think this is not so convincing that this is like really a big issue with the vaccines, I have to say. So, I, just one second. So this is a very important, and I'll, I'll let Naga comment about, about their experience after, but this is a, a very smart way that uh, you guys reported in the journal in a letter. So you basically looked at the incidence of autoimmune hepatitis and compared it during vaccine times and before uh, the vaccine. Yes. But you are a center of reference in Germany for autoimmune hepatitis. Yeah, you think there might be a problem. There might be an issue here of people not 
recognizing this as the, the textbook autoimmune hepatitis uh, that they, they're used to see and then to report to your center if you have such a mechanism of automatic reporting of new cases. And they might have thought more in terms of a, a Dilly-like phenomenon, which does not necessarily need to be reported as autoimmune hepatitis. Could that explain why they were simply not reported? Um, it could be that less patients were referred to us. But in general, we are not just like a center for autoimmune hepatitis, but like a hepatology center. And we also treat a lot of Dilly cases and like a lot of patients to come to us that have like unexplained um, elevated liver enzymes. So um, it could be that it's like it's a single center experience and that some people, some people got lost. But if it would be like a big problem, I think we would have noticed, right, that at least the numbers do not decline. And um, I think, um, yeah. And then, and then we had a second letter coming from Naga's group, Naga Chalazani group at Indiana University that looked more on the acute liver injury and, and uh, side of, uh, of alterations following the vaccine. So Naga, you reached some sort of similar conclusions. Tell us about it. Now, I, so in our study, which is more an epidemiological study, so in the state of Indiana, over the course of 10 months, approximately 4 million people received the vaccines. And we've selected about 400,000 people who had normal liver tests prior to getting the vaccine. And we looked at the incidence of, we called suspected DILI based on epidemiological definition, which we have published before. So we looked at the frequency of that suspected biochemical delay in COVID-19 vaccine recipients, and we compared that to influenza vaccine recipients, about 21,000 in 2019. So the incidence of this suspected delay or biochemical, unexplained biochemical elevations following COVID-19 vaccine was 0.038%. And when we compared to influenza vaccine, it actually was lower. In the influenza vaccine, the same definition, if you look at, it was 0.07%. Granted, there is an age difference. You know, the, uh, the people who have received influenza vaccine were predominantly over the age of 65. They have gotten some medications, comorbidities nonetheless. We tried to screen for all those but overall, I think, especially if you look at clinically significant elevations in liver tests, very rare after COVID-19 vaccine, this is almost like a population study. We captured about half of the population of Indiana. That's our health system. So uh, I tend to agree with you, Hans, that this is not, you know, this happens. This is a real phenomena. But at a uh, larger scale, at a population level, this is not something that, sh that should dissuade people from getting the vaccine. Now, if this happens in some individuals, and I understand that it is a minority, so it sort of gets drowned if you look at macroepidemiology data, it still happens in some individuals. It has features of autoimmune hepatitis that we're familiar with. It responds to corticosteroids. So there is no doubt that something is happening that is immune mediated. And in that sense, a very important uh, paper has been published uh, in the Journal of Hepatology, I think in the July issue uh, from Tobias Böttler and, um, and uh, other virologists at the Freiburg University. 
And maybe Johannes, you can comment upon that paper because it really showed the mechanism and the, the that could be involved to make it yeah. simple in the occurrence of these phenomena. Yeah, first of all, I would like to say probably there are more mechanisms than just one. But what they did, and I really liked it, is that they looked more closely to the immune infiltrates. Because if you do just a conventional immune um, pathochemistry, like just normal liver histology, I think it's really difficult to get a clue if this is really like kind of autoimmune hepatitis or something else. So what they found is that um, in a patient who had like two exposures to the vaccine and who had like a small flare after the first shot and got really severe hepatitis after the second shot, they uh, observed infiltrates of CD8 positive cytotoxic inactivated T cells that were like infiltrating the whole liver areas and that were specific for SARS-CoV-2, um, which is pointing to a different pathomechanism in autoimmune hepatitis because it's more pointing to an antigen-specific immune activation causing liver injury. So this seems really like a different mechanism than conventional autoimmune hepatitis, right? Where you have like plasma cell infiltrates, where you have interface hepatitis here, CD8-positive cytotoxic T-cells that are specific for SARS-CoV-2 in all liver areas. So this is something, something different. Um, and uh, I think it's probably for many cases a good explanation. What is not clear yet is what is the antigen that uh, these T-cells are seeing in the liver, if there is mRNA hepatocytes or spike protein expressed or whatever. But um, it's immune mediated, but it's just not like the same mechanism as in typical autoimmune hepatitis. Okay. This, this, yeah, go ahead, please. This is Bob. I would agree. I think we're kind of doing the community a disservice by calling this autoimmune hepatitis. Yeah. Um, and again, it's because it's not all, it isn't autoimmune. Um, many of these patients get treated with steroids, but there are many who improve without steroids. So we don't want to over-treat these patients. And again, um, as, as Naga has seen and I've seen, and I think the rest of us on the call, it's not always positive ANA smooth muscle uh, antibody, it can be cholestasis. So I'd say it's vaccine-induced hepatitis would be a better, broader term, some of whom have autoimmune features. But we're, I think we're confusing people if we say that this is autoimmune hepatitis, in, in my opinion. And we've had the same problem with other drug classes. So for example, the checkpoint inhibitors, which is a whole nother webinar, um, you know, initially everyone said, well, that's just like autoimmune. Well, when you start to biopsy these patients, it's not. And we've now created it again in the published literature, all sorts of problems with what do we call immune checkpoint inhibitor induced liver injury, as opposed to autoimmune like hepatitis from checkpoint inhibitors. So I think, you know, that's something we as a, you know, group should think about as these papers get published in the terminology we use. This to me, to my knowledge, Naga, there was uh, some papers on influenza virus causing sporadic um, hepatitis, but it didn't seem like it had much play. This seems to be maybe more, um, more prominent because we get to things quicker, right, in 2022 than we did when influenza virus was introduced. I mean, what's your sense, Naga, about vaccines you know, causing liver injury? It's the same. It's the magnitude of vaccination, Bob. You know, in the state of Indiana, in 10 months time, we have vaccinated 4 million people. You just don't do that kind of stuff with the influenza vaccine. It's a single dose, 
So uh, I, I agree with you totally. I think reconsidering the nomenclature to call it vaccine-related liver injury or something like that, or even injury might impart more severity, something softer. So we don't really do disservice to patients and communities that uh, yeah. that discourage vaccination. Yeah, but if if I would like, if I would want to argue with you, which I should, since we're having this <laughs> webinar, I would I would say that if you change the nomenclature the way you suggest, you put the blame on the vaccine. Yeah. And yeah. that's the last thing we but, want is to enhance yeah. the, the, the perception that the vaccine has yet another complication. So that would be- the it's, also not, it's also not autoimmune hepatitis, I would say. It's, I mean, it's immune mediated, okay. triggered by the vaccine, but, but to really call it autoimmune hepatitis. But that doesn't shock the public, the lay public, <laughs> because it's, it's a very cryptic, uh, disease or immune hepatitis, so yeah. they won't care much. But uh, all the people who are opposed to vaccines will, will take advantage yeah. of this. Yeah. Now, uh, going back to more seriously, um, so you're saying that some of these cases resolve without therapy. So how, do, how would you manage someone who has an increase in ALT, say above 300, uh, without, without jaundice uh, occurring after a vaccine? When would you put him on steroids and, and based on what signs? Bob, you, 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 so, you. Sure. So I would not put anyone on steroids um, unless they sort of force my hand. Um, so in other words, you just, you know, the vaccine's already given, so it's not like it's given chronically and you monitor them. And if they're not jaundiced and not symptomatic, you can monitor them. And then if you're uncertain, yeah. you've done your whole differential diagnosis then you could consider a liver biopsy for diagnostic slash prognostic purposes. But again, I can only tell you in the patients that have been, you know, retrospectively, you know, identified in our, in our study, there were uh, probably about 30, 40% who never got steroids and completely did fine. And some of them resolved within two weeks. So, you know, I think being patient is the way to go. And again, you know, Naga and I at least can speak from the Dilly world. It's the same thing for Dilly in general. We don't want people just using steroids because they just became jaundiced. Um, you know, we want to learn more and be a little bit more thoughtful. So I would say, personally, I would wait at least four to six weeks unless the patient is deteriorating, then you have a little bit more of a clinical rationale. I don't know. What do you think, Hans? Uh, Fernando, what, what do you guys think? I completely agree. I mean, I've, in general, I think liver biopsy is in most cases a good idea. And, and if you see on liver biopsy, for instance, then there is already like advanced fibrosis, then you know, okay, this is not something acute. This is maybe autoimmune hepatitis that has not been uh, known before, then you can think about the therapy. But um, someone with uh, serum transaminases around three, 400 or whatever, I would just watch and wait. Yeah, I, I'm not a hepatologist, so I will refrain from answering. Uh, <laughs> so I'm internal medicine and endocrinology. Okay. But uh, our experience uh, has been, in our cases, ALT and AST were in the thousands and they were jaundiced and symptomatic. But I, I go to your point that they usually respond very well with steroids and usually sh short course. Uh, both our patients that I, I remember they are off steroids, no relapse, and they were 
kind of discharged from clinic and following with a PCP. So they did yeah. really well. So whether they would have done that well without steroids, uh, it could be, but they just both received steroids. But they are oh. withdrawn from steroids now. Yeah, they uh, and they so, did a short course and uh, yeah. they are both off steroids without relapses. I think this was what happens really in most cases in the literature, which also is pointing to the fact that this is not typical human hepatitis, right? I, I would also point out to the other things we know about COVID, I'm sorry, COVID vaccine-induced immune-mediated phenomena. So we know the most probably about myocarditis, actually. And, you know, many of those patients are hospitalized because of concerns of arrhythmias and so on and so forth. And if you look at what happens with those, and there's way more of those cases than there are of uh, vaccine-induced hepatitis, most of them improve again with supportive care. Then their next step is to give a non-steroidal and only in severe would they consider steroids for myocarditis. And that's a much more serious entity in my mind than you know, vaccine-induced hepatitis. So if we look to our, you know, our friends in other fields, they're also, it's, it, you know, it's hard to sit on your hands sometimes, but I think in this case, um, uh, you know, unless you have a severe case, it's progressing and uh, um, not improving you know, over time, I, I, I'd be reluctant to recommend steroids very um, freely. So the two key points I'm taking away from what you said is that even if you don't put these patients on steroids, as long as they don't have jaundice or signs of hepatic failure, uh, their liver function tests will go, liver enzymes will go back to normal just as fast as those treated on steroids. It won't take three months longer. Well, well again, it's, it's, you've got to be careful, right? We're trying to analyze retrospective data that's not random, you know, randomized. So, so there's a bias. People, if you look again at this publication of 32 patients, um, 75% got treated with steroids, but when you look at them, they tended to be the sicker patients. So they were more likely to be yeah. jaundiced or hospitalized. So, so you get a bias in, in the literature as to who got reported in the literature. And then amongst those, they're more likely to get steroid therapy is my point. And right. so, I'm, so I would say though, how about Bob to say that progressively worsening aminotransferases, including bilirubin are symptomatic you know, like what Fernando's patient, a short course of steroids is not the same as you're committing to lifelong immunosuppression, you know, along with the liver biopsy. Along with the biopsy, right. You know, as you sort out, competing ideologies must be ruled out. But I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you said it right. If your hands forced, you know, steroids, a short course of steroids isn't that bad. Right. And we don't know whether putting them on steroids will reduce the chances of having a, a relapse after uh, a second right. dose of vaccine, for sure. We don't know. No. So um, I think we covered a lot of things, but I would like to end with uh, some considerations regarding the, the, the vaccine, whether, whether this signals of autoimmune-mediated processes and hepatitis um, in people that are vaccinated should um, make us re reconsider uh, our uh, stance on vaccinations, so certainly not from a population level. Uh, what we have seen uh, from the data presented initially is certainly not either in, um, in high-risk groups, such as people with chronic liver diseases, such as liver transplant recipients, and such as people with, in particular, autoimmune hepatitis. Those people are not at higher risk of having any 
um, any side effects of the vaccine. And actually they respond to the vaccine quite quite well. This again, uh, if you wanna read a very good review on the, on the data published is, is available in the ESO position paper. But my question to you is, since these hepatic events haven't been uh, described in the initial database of these vaccines, the phase three trials, because they're so rare, but since they do happen uh, and they have a, a immunological basis as we have seen in, in the liver, how do you explain to patients this discrepancy between telling them on one hand that the, the, the vaccine is safe and then clearly having cases that they can show you that in, in some people it does induce a, a serious disease? How, how do you communicate on that and, and how do you reconcile that to the lay person? I don't think it's that easy. So how would you say that? Yeah, mm, I, I, I can start. I can... No, Go ahead, no, Fernando. Yeah, I know. I just wanted to tell you my experience after we published our first paper. I started receiving emails from patients all over the world saying that their liver enzymes were elevated and blaming the vaccine. So I felt compelled. I, I wrote another letter just saying like, it's just one case. And I did a little bit of math and said, if the CDC said that 13 million people got the vaccine in the US in the first month, and we know the incidence of autoimmune hepatitis, we would expect 10 cases right. every month of people that got vaccinated and then developed uh, autoimmune uh, hepatitis. So I just try to explain that even if this is real and even if the vaccine is inducing this in a very, very tiny number of patients, first, we wouldn't know what COVID would do in those patients. It may be that they may still get that or even worse. And overall, this is just a drop in an ocean. So that's how I try to explain that. Like it. I, I would agree with you, Fernando. I think our approach has been a bit little more quantitative. Based on just our own epidemiological data, we were telling patients that, yeah, this happens, but we are talking in the order of maybe one in 100,000 of meaningful injury. Therefore, you know what? You have 99,999 times you're not going to have anything. And when you spell out like that, I mean, our patients really sh shrug their shoulders. Uh, but that's really the point is that, um, you know, you're right, Vlad, patients with underlying autoimmune liver disease have asked, should we take the vaccine? You know, uh, and in our own experience, there is an abstract that we published last year at DDW. There just, just doesn't seem to be a signal, at least in the, autoimmune hepatitis social uh, uh, social media uh, community, there does not seem to be any increased risk even in AIH patients. So overall, I think this speaks to just the tremendous safety of these vaccines from a liver standpoint. Thank you. I think you said it all, Naga. So um, thank you all for participating into this webinar. Um, we covered, I hope, many uh, aspects of, of this phenomenon that has been described, but uh, certainly other, the clinical experience will, will keep expanding and uh, uh, I'm sure we'll learn new things about this. Um, I would like to thank you all and uh, see you next Wednesday. <laughs>